Hey guys, it's Destry from The Practical Idealist, and today I am going solo for part two of our Scooby-Doo retrospective on the first four Scooby-Doo direct-to-video films. So the first movie I'm going to be talking about today is Scooby-Doo and the Witch's Ghost, which was released in 1999. As you'll remember, there are a couple of important people involved in the franchise at this point. That would be Jim Stenstrom, Davis Doy, Glenn Leopold, and Lance Falk, and Jim Stenstrom is still the director. But, controversy, screenwriters Rick Kopp and David A. Goodman were hired to replace Glenn Leopold as the head writer. This was one of many weird decisions made by Warner Brothers, who was the parent company of Hanna-Barbera at this point. They had already received a rather sizable return on investment from Zombie Island, so they decided that it would be a better idea to hire their own writers and do Scooby-Doo their way, which I don't see why you would switch things up when everything's going so well. However, Glenn Leopold was still very much involved in how the story was conceived, and after Rick Kopp and David A. Goodman had finished their original concepts, he literally just rewrote the ending. If you've ever seen Witch's Ghost, you'll know that maybe the first 40 or so minutes is a mystery involving whether or not this small New England town is actually haunted, or is it just a hoax? And they find out that, of course, it's just a hoax being put on by the townspeople to drive tourism in their town. But then, after that, it kind of goes off the rails, and you find out that, once again, the monsters are real, and a character that's been part of the gang during the initial mystery is now involved in the supernatural element. It's funny to me that... Even though they got these professional screenwriters to come in, Glenn Leopold essentially wrote the most memorable part of the movie. So in this one, Scott Innes replaced Billy West as Shaggy, so he is both Shaggy and Scooby. There's some, you know, minor differences, of course, if you know the characters really well, but overall, I think it was very respectful. So another interesting fact about the voice actors Jennifer Hale, Jane Weedlin, who is the rhythm guitarist for the Go-Go's, surprisingly, and Kimberly Brooks perform two of the three Hex Girl songs in the film. The third one is over the credits, and it's, it's very remarkably not them. And what I thought was really cool, and talking about the legacy of this franchise, all three have continued to voice those characters in every other iteration, that the Hex Girls have been involved in. Notable voice actors include, of course, the incomparable Tress McNeil, and you'll know her probably as Mom. That's the voice that she essentially uses for her character in this, is Mom in Ye Olden Times from Futurama. But I was first introduced to her on Tiny Toon Adventures, and she voiced Babs. She's just impossibly talented, and she definitely has one of those distinctive voices that even if she's doing one of her myriad of voices, you can always kind of tell that it's her. She's a legend. I can't say anything more than that. So <laughs> there's my little geek out moment. But then again, in my opinion, 
voice actors are some of the best, most talented people in the business. And, you know, you only see them at cons all the time. I would love to go to a con and meet any number of them because they're iconic to everyone's childhood, especially mine, because I was always very much a animation person. I, I never really got into the live action movies until I was a little bit older. And even then, that was mostly horror movies. But it's always been animated movies, cartoon shows, and that type of thing. So we also have Tim Curry, which is the most iconic part of this movie. If you've never even seen it, you know that Tim Curry's in it and he's a badass. And of course, he's the character I referenced earlier, which is the switch up where he's part of the gang trying to solve the mystery at the beginning, but then at the end, he becomes the true villain of the story when he resurrects his witch ancestor, who then tries to destroy everything, even though I guess his plan was to unite forces with her and rule the world, which isn't that always how cartoon villains think. And it's weird to me that he tries to, like, tone down his voice a lot. And I mean, he kind of loosens up toward the end when he's getting to play the villain role, but all you really want is to hear Tim Curry do Tim Curry. <laughs> so Glenn Leopold, once again, wrote the pop songs featured in the film, and country musician Billy Ray Cyrus performed the theme song, which, okay, so, as I was kind of referencing before, there was a lot of studio interference from Warner Brothers into the Hanna-Barbera camp, and this was an ongoing issue for the production team, and it kind of came to a head at the end of this era of Scooby-Doo, which is the fourth film in this franchise. Suffice it to say that this was planting the seeds of dissension among the group that was responsible for these films. And another interesting little fact is that during the musical sequence at the end of the film, where the gang is up on stage with the Hex Girls, they're all playing instruments. Well, initially the idea for Scooby-Doo was for them to be a traveling band that would solve mysteries as they went from gig to gig. And each character during that sequence was going to play the instrument that they would have played in that original Scooby-Doo concept. So I thought that was really fun and a nice little callback for the fans of the franchise. So I also have a couple of personal notes that I took while I was watching the film. And first I want to say that listening to Tim Curry say leaf peepers is one of my favorite things. And I desperately want a notification on my phone of him saying that. It's just the best thing ever. <laughs> so this was an interesting beast for me because when I was pitching this idea to Katie, I told her that the first two are probably going to be the best of the bunch and then the other two were kind of here, there, and everywhere, which in some cases I guess is kind of true and I'll get into that, but it shocked me that it was so different from the way I remembered it. So we talked a lot in our Zombie Island review about how interesting and intricate the animation for that one was. And immediately off the bat, you really feel in Witch's Ghost that the animation somehow has been downgraded, which I think is partly due to the fact that it was rushed into production after Zombie Island 
did so well. So they had less time to go through all the production stages and to really clean things up. I mean, they go for the same kind of dark, moody style as Zombie Island, and it is the same animation studio, but it's really flat. It was kind of like elevated TV animation. Backgrounds were much less intricate and much less gothic than Zombie Island, and there was a lot less definition between the characters and the background. Because if you watch a lot of early Scooby-Doo, because of the limited animation, the characters are kind of walking on top of these painted backgrounds, and Zombie Island kind of gave you that same feel. So I guess in a way, Witch's Ghost's animation is more integrated, which is not a bad thing. And I think that that's something that they improve upon as the next two movies go. But for this one, it just seems rushed. I just don't think that they had the time and I also think that a lot of the issue was that the original Zombie Island team was still running the show, but was being made to be less involved. And I think that that kind of shows in the quality of the product. This one is a lot more traditionally mystery focused. It's kind of like an extended episode of the show, which based on some information that I received when I was doing my research, that was the main reason why Glenn Leopold decided to rewrite the ending. It just wasn't the style that they were going for. The finale is very anime-like. Like the way that it's directed and the way that it's animated really gives me the feeling that they wanted to do an anime fight scene inside of a Scooby-Doo film. And the animation just gets 10 times better, which I think kind of gives credence to my opinion that the animation team really just wanted to work with the Zombie Island team and no one else. The witch character design is really, really cool. And what I think is so funny is that the anime style fits so well with Scooby-Doo. You would think that a very American property would not be able to pull off that kind of style, but it is surprisingly effective. So going back to talk about the story for a minute, I think that this film does attempt to lampoon some of the Scooby-Doo tropes and cliches, but as opposed to Zombie Island where they were trying to subvert them in some way, shape, or form, it seems like a lot of jokes are thrown in here just to be kind of like a wink to the audience that knows Scooby-Doo really well. And I mean, they're not unfunny jokes, but when you're making fun of something and then doing the exact same thing that has always been done and relying on those cliches and tropes, that's when it's a little bit reductive. And of course, I couldn't finish out Scooby-Doo and the Witch's Ghost without a message from Katie that the Wiccan and Witch information is entirely incorrect. It may have been somewhat well-researched back in 1999, but as it stands today, pretty much all of that is just wrong information. So I would be remiss not to give that shout out from Katie. Now we are on to Scooby-Doo and the Alien Invaders. Once again, the creative team is reassembled, and once again, it is an in-house production. Apparently, Warner Brothers decided to flip the script and basically tell the production team, just do what you want to do with it. 
which I don't know why they flipped so drastically. Maybe there was some kind of switch up during the new millennium because this was released in 2000. But it's just so odd to me that they wanted to be involved in Witch's Ghost, but then all of a sudden it's back to, it's going to sell no matter what, just do what you want. And I'm sure that that did not ingratiate the production team to Warner Brothers any more than it already had. So this would be the last traditionally, which is the hand-painted cells, animated Scooby-Doo property, which is kind of sad when you think about it because at this point the property is 30 years old and every single iteration and incarnation has been in this style. And I am one of the biggest proponents for 2D traditional animation. I think that there is still a lot of life left in that sort of art form. And now that people are being trained to do all of the CGI computer animation, it's hard to get people who know how to do it the old way, which is really sad to me because it's almost like a dying art form. It's almost like it's going to cease to exist at some point. So I wanted to take a moment and talk about a sad, very morbid kind of topic here, but I think it's important. Mary Kay Bergman, who played Daphne in Zombie Island, Witch's Ghost, and Alien Invaders, is no longer with us because in 1999 she committed suicide. So this is her last appearance as Daphne. The role was later given to one of her students, Gray Delisle, now Gray Griffin, and I mean what can you say when something tragic like that happens to someone who obviously has so much to give? It's just really emotional. So I just wanted to make sure that I, I mention her and say that I appreciate her contribution. And this film is dedicated to her, which I think is a beautiful send-off. So, other notable voice actors include Mark Hamill, yet again, and Mr. Jeff Bennett, who in recent memory has become one of the go-to impersonators for old-school Disney voices. I know that he did the voice of Tramp in Lady and the Tramp 2. He kind of just fills in for people's roles who the voice actors are no longer here. This is the first time that Glenn Leopold did not write any music for the film, and instead Stenstrom and Falk wrote one featured pop song each. Another interesting thing is that Scott Innes and Candy Milo, who is another amazing voice actress, perform the song How Groovy. Up to that point, they always had like a musical group to sing all of the pop songs, and so I just thought it was cute that they actually got the voice actors to sing that song. Bizarrely enough, Jennifer Love Hewitt was the person who did the theme song in this one, which, I mean, really? Like, they couldn't get anyone else. It's so bizarre. I couldn't not mention that. So another bizarre thing that I noticed when I was doing my research is that Zombie Island and Alien Invaders are the only two of the initial four direct-to-video Scooby-Doo films that have ever been packaged together on DVD. Like, you can't find all four of them in one DVD set. 
as far as I'm aware. And I think that most of that is because both of those films were the in-house productions. So all of the people who are receiving money from the sales of that, I guess, are in the same group of people. I mean, that's my understanding. But it's just so weird that, especially at this point when nostalgic properties like this are so in vogue, and especially these first four direct-to-video films are so iconic in a lot of people's childhoods that we don't have a compilation of all four of these, just Zombie Island and Alien Invaders. I thought that was really weird. This is the one that I have seen the least. I think that as a child, because most of it takes place during the day in this very bright desert location, that I thought it was less scary or good, but I was actually really surprised by how much I enjoyed watching this one. And I think because I hadn't really seen it all the way through in such a very, very long time, that it was almost like it was a whole new movie to me, as opposed to these other ones that I've watched every single year as a kid. And I also thought that the animation was much, much better. And I do think that that has a lot to do with the fact that this went into production around the same time as Witch's Ghost, maybe a little bit afterward. So they did have that extra time to work on the story and work on the animation. And as opposed to Witch's Ghost, I did think that the characters are much better integrated. They still stand out against the backgrounds, but they are more intrinsic to the world. And they find a way of doing that that doesn't make the animation look flat. They use shading very provocatively, I guess you could say, in this one. Especially with the aliens and the alien designs. It makes that design look really iconic. If you know nothing about this movie, just like with the last one, you know the alien design. Like, that's the most memorable part of this movie. And this one also reverts to the non-traditional story structure that was implemented in Zombie Island, where the characters are involved in a mystery without actively attempting to solve the mystery. They're more so exploring the location, and as they do so, more bits and pieces of information that's going to assist them in essentially solving the mystery are revealed to them without them actively going about searching for clues. It makes it much more interesting to watch and it makes it much more easy to watch because you're not so hung up on the details of, okay, they're going to do this, then this is going to happen and then this is going to happen. The beats are essentially the same, but the way that they're packaged is different. However, I will say that the mystery, and to an extent the story, is kind of underwhelming. I mean, I think pretty much every Scooby-Doo mystery is obvious to a certain extent. I think that they do a good job trying to redirect you and kind of lead you astray, but it's apparent to me that they were not given the green light to go as off the rails as they were on Zombie Island. I do like the switch up between the supernatural elements that the evil scary aliens are the fake ones and the nice inquisitive ones that Scooby and Shaggy come across are instead the actually real ones. 
I also found Scooby really expressive in this one, like more so than usual, and I think that that has a lot to do with the fact that the animation team recognized the fact that they couldn't just hang a lantern on the gothic, dark, brooding backgrounds that they had used in the previous two, and because of the location that this takes place in, they had to kind of tweak how they presented the characters and presented the world. So Scooby was probably at his best animated within this film of these first direct video films. Also thought the songs were kind of hokey. I mean, I appreciate that Stenstrom and Falk attempted to do something a little bit different and contribute in that way to this film. And I think that they're hokey in a fun, lighthearted way, as opposed to Zombie Island or even some of the Hex Girl songs, where they're pretty legitimate songs. They might have like a funky lyric here and there, but as far as this one, I don't think I'll be listening to How Groovy ever again. Just saying. All right, so the last film that I do want to discuss here today is Scooby-Doo and the Cyber Chase, which was released in 2001. So this, as I have mentioned, would be the last substantial Scooby-Doo property to include Scott Innes as Shaggy and Scooby and B.J. Ward as Velma. Casey Kasem would return to the Shaggy role until he retired and gave the role to Matthew Lillard. And for the next two direct-to-video Scooby-Doo films, Heather North, the original Daphne, and Nicole Joff, or Joffy, I couldn't find a proper pronunciation of her last name, so I apologize, would return as Velma. But then after that, Heather North would be replaced by Grey Delisle, and Mindy Cohn would take over for Velma until Kate Micucci. This would also be the last Scooby-Doo property to be animated by Mook Animation, which is sad because I think that they brought a lot of very interesting dimensions to the animation and to the characters and their contribution was definitely what makes these stand out. So once again we have another passing of a very important part of the Hanna-Barbera family and that would be William Hanna in 2001. The film is dedicated to him. This would also be the last Scooby-Doo property to be creatively directed by the Dream Team. And I think that this has a lot to do with the fact that Warner Brothers fully absorbed Hanna-Barbera Productions after this film was made because of the fact that William Hanna had passed away. So they were very much involved in this production because I think that they felt that they had to be because it was no longer technically an outsourced film and it was more so an in-house production for Warner Brothers. I also think that another issue arose that would be kind of the nail in the coffin, and that would be the hiring of Mark Turose as the screenwriter. So the issue with Mark Turose is that he had no prior experience writing for animation, and when he turned in his initial draft of the script, the creative team literally told him that it was basically unusable. And I think that that really took a toll on the team because it's ridiculous for a studio to hire somebody who has no reason to be doing what they've been hired for. He had no experience whatsoever in this field, and yet they thought that he was going to be a good match 
And another really funny thing is that they must have really liked Mark Turose because he was also contracted to write the screenplay for the next Scooby-Doo direct-to-video film, which I'm sure that that had absolutely nothing to do with the fact that no one wanted to come back for the next one. So apparently there was only so much that they could do to alter Mark Turose's script, so they had to hire on an excessive amount of additional storyboard artists because of the elaborate nature of the story and the time constraint that they had to produce this film. So as I mentioned when we were talking about Alien Invaders, that was the last traditionally animated Scooby-Doo property, so this was the first digitally animated Scooby-Doo property. And a video game was released to tie in to the concept of the film, which I owned as a kid, and it's a good kids game, I would say. It's kind of clunky, which I think a lot of movie tie-in games of that era kind of were. It's not the greatest game ever, and it doesn't really follow the plot as laid out in this film very well. And to date, this is the only Scooby-Doo direct-to-video film that has a tie-in video game. Notable voice actors include Joe Alasky, which a lot of people may not know that name off the top of their head, but he is one of Mel Blanc's Looney Tunes successors. This was also the first of the initial four Scooby-Doo direct-to-video films to have pop songs not written by a member of the creative team, so they brought in their own songwriters too. I guess they just did not want to work with this team anymore. It's very apparent to me that there was a lot of ill will between the studio and this team. And speaking for myself, I would not want to be involved even in a property that is dear to my heart when all of the creative decisions are being made by people that you don't trust. So I can really understand why they were burnt out by the end of this and decided to disband. It's very obvious to me that it was time to go. <laughs> And the last little interesting tidbit of information I have on this film is that the B-52s perform the theme song. So on to some impressions I have about the movie. The animation is very, very clean. It does take away a lot of the atmosphere because it is digitally animated, but this was the logical next step so it doesn't bother me so much and once again we are back to the more traditional scooby-doo mystery solving structure especially the first 20 or so minutes before they get put into the game they're off searching for the virus they're off trying to find who's behind it and i mean it works much better than it worked in witch's ghost but it still isn't very original. The tone is really comedic, which I don't have a problem with, but the issue I do have is the fact that the villain is just not threatening. They do all of the typical Scooby-Doo things, like they dress up in weird costumes to misdirect him, and he trips and falls on stuff. It's very slapsticky, and the villain isn't really all that scary or interesting, really. And once again, the mystery is solvable within five seconds. We have a character who made a baseball game, and then the Phantom Virus speaks almost exclusively in baseball puns. So, hmm, I wonder who did it. And I guess the issue that I take with it is the fact that 
by this point, the needle had gone so far to the other side of kid-friendly that there's not really a good balance of fake versus real threat. Like, of course, the threat in Zombie Island was completely, totally real. And then they start playing on that idea that, yes, there's still fake monsters, but there's still a supernatural element. But then in this one, it seems like there's no real stakes. It's not really discussed what would happen if the phantom virus catches them in the game, but ultimately I never felt like this was anything more than just a mystery to solve. The ending is the most memorable part, and I do think it is a fitting send-off to an era of Scooby-Doo, and I really appreciate these films overall for trying to do something vastly different with the franchise while still retaining its original intention and these are very nostalgic for me and I have a lot of love and reverence for this franchise. Ultimately I had a really fun time revisiting all of these. Zombie Island is still my absolute favorite but none of them are bad and they all have interesting things to contribute and I can't express how much I appreciate the creative team for being so invested. And these four films really do serve as a bookend to my childhood. And I know Scooby-Doo has a lot of life left in him. He has a new movie coming out next year that's going to be some kind of weird Hanna-Barbera multiverse, which I'm interested to see how they pull that one off. So I just wanted to Thank everybody who's contributed to this franchise, and I look forward to the future. So at this time, I would like to remind everybody that we do have a Twitter at Idealist underscore the, and wanted to let you all know that we will be returning at the end of January. So we will see you then.